took a census of the second generation, chapter 27, God appointed a new leader in the form of Joshua. And I wonder if, like me, you were wondering to yourself, are we going to turn the page and God's people are finally going to enter into the promised land and your hopes were all dashed because we ended up having to study the regulations around sacrificial offerings and the regulations around feasts and festivals. Well, I'm sorry, you're going to still have to hold your breath because we come to chapter 30 and there's more instructions from God for his people as they prepare to enter the promised land. And this evening we're going to be looking at the whole reality of oaths. You might think it's strange that a chapter on instructions regarding worship is followed by a chapter on oaths. Well, if you're a good Presbyterian and you know your Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 21 of the Westminster Confession of Faith is on worship. Chapter 22 of the Westminster Confession of Faith is on oaths. This is very fitting. They go hand in hand. The only context you should ever make an oath or a vow or a promise is in the context of worship. So let us give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. Have your Bibles open back at Numbers chapter 30. I know that for some of you, it wasn't that long ago when you left home and moved to this great city of London. I know that for others of you, it was many moons ago, and uh, you've been here for a long while. Now, it would not surprise me that if if this was the case, that before you left home to move to, to London, that your parents or perhaps your pastor sat you down and said, listen, I've got some advice for you. And they gave you some general advice for living a life in a new city. Maybe they told you, make sure you find a church, a good church, settle fast. Maybe they told you how to be safe and keep uh, safe in a city, how to be streetwise. Well, the reason I mention that is because here in Numbers chapters 28, 29, and 30, that's what God's doing with his people. They're preparing to leave the wilderness. They've been there for 40 years, and they're about to make a new home. In the promised land. And God has got instructions for them. For when they get to the promised land. And God wants his people. When they live in the promised land. To be a distinct people. A people who have. A form of worship. That is distinct and different from all the world. They will worship God by means of sacrifice. We saw this in chapter 28 didn't we? Daily sacrifice. Weekly sacrifice. Monthly sacrifice sacrifices of all the feasts and festivals. And at the heart of the sacrificial system, there was many things that were represented, but not least what was represented was God would impress upon his people that he is holy and just. And as they approach him and as they come into relationship with him, because of their sin, atonement needs to be made. A lamb without blemish needs to be offered. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Now, we know that all the animal sacrifices of the sacrificial system didn't literally forgive the people of their sins. It was pointing to Jesus, the Lamb of God, whose blood alone atones for, atoned for his people. They were not just to have a, a distinct way of worship. They were to have a distinct yearly calendar. It was to be centered in all the great feasts, beginning with Passover. They were to be a people who begun their year knowing that their identity was as a redeemed people, rescued from slavery and bondage in Egypt. And again, this distinct calendar would point God's people 
backwards to what God had done, and it would point God's people forwards to what God would one day do in the giving of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God wanted his people to live in a distinct way in their new home land so that all the surrounding nations would know this people are holy and set apart. They showcase the God they worship, Yahweh. And as we come to chapter 30, God's got more instructions and it regards their words, their promises. God wants his people to be a people who mean what they say and they say what they mean. Whose yeses are yes and whose noes are no. Just so you, you see, uh, look back at chapter 29, verse 39. It's just two verses up from the beginning of chapter 30. These you shall offer to the Lord at your appointed feasts in addition to your vow offerings and your freewill offerings. God just made mention of the fact to his people that they will be a people who make vows. Part of the sacrificial system included God's people making promises to God about how they were living their lives. It's all throughout the Old Testament. We sang about it in Psalm 65. I could ask you, what, what vows come to mind? Do you remember some of the vows that God's people made in the Old Testament? Genesis chapter 21, Abraham with Abimelech. Genesis chapter 28, Jacob, Bethel, makes a sacrifice, makes a vow, promised to, to give God uh, that something, a tithe of that which God has given him. Hannah for Samuel. She's childless. She longs for a child. She vows to the Lord, if you give me a child, I'll dedicate him to the temple. And she does just that, Samuel to Eli. There's even that rash and foolish vow made by Jephthah in Judges. Whatever comes out of my house, that I will give to you, Lord, and sacrifice. And who comes out of his house but his daughter? A foolish and wicked vow. Now, one of the spoiler alerts you need to know is that God's people who are called to live distinctly in their new home would be a people who sadly failed to keep their promises and keep their word. But don't worry, that points us to the fact God who is faithful, faithful to keep his oath, to keep his promise. The Father with the Son promised before they laid the foundation of the earth that they would save a people for themselves chose a people for themselves. In Revelation, God promised, even in following the sin in the garden, that one of Eve's descendants would come and crush the head of the serpent. God made promises, vows to Abraham. Even in Genesis 15, that great vision that Abraham had, passing through the, the fire and the animals, God would take curse of a broken promise on himself if it were not kept and he did in the cross through his son the lord jesus christ well tonight i want us to walk through this section it's on vows and promises it's for how god's people are to live in the land and um, someone made a really interesting remark to me this morning uh, at church lunch he said to me you know what's fascinating about this church maybe it's more true of the morning services there's so many men in it i was like really i've never noticed that I said, yeah, like, 
There's still a lot of men in this church. There's a lot of women, but there's a lot of men. Well, the reason I mention that is because, men, you better listen up this evening. This chapter, at least the beginning of it, speaks to us about our high and our holy calling. As men who are part of an family of God, we have responsibilities that fall upon our shoulders. But sisters, you need to know that the majority of this chapter is dedicated to you. <laughs> and um, you're going to see God's beautiful love and care and commitment, provision and protection for you. What I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly just uh, outline what we've got before us. And then we're going to walk through it section by section. And as we end, we'll, we'll look at Jesus. So what do we have before us? Well, you need to know that in the Old Testament, you get two different kinds of laws. You get the laws like the moral law, the Ten Commandments. You shall not do this, do that. That's not this. What we have before us is case law. If you're in this situation, this hypothetical situation, this is what you need to do. If you're in this situation, this is what you can do. This is a series of case laws. You find them all over Exodus. You find them all throughout Leviticus. You find them here in the book of Numbers. And as I said, the fascinating focus of the case law here is mainly on the circumstances regarding a wife or a daughter. So let me outline the chapter in verse 1. We have the introduction. This is the words of the Lord. This is his instruction. The same way that God had given very clear instructions of how God's people were to worship him and how they were to live for him in any given year, God says, I've got more instructions for you regarding vows to him. In verse 2, God gives very clear instructions to men, um, men who make vows. This is the fact that every man, especially a father, a husband, when you make a vow, there are no exceptions. Your word is your bond. You must keep your vow. Let me get to verses 3 and 5. There's the instructions to a young woman who's growing up in her father's home under his care. And then in verses 6 and 8, we have directions about young women who have just become brides. In verse 9, we have instructions for widows and divorcees. In verses 10 and 12, we have instructions for wives making vows, women who are already part of the married home. And then in verses 13 to 16, we come to the final part of the passage. It is to do with wives making vows, which are then violated by their husbands. And the consequence of that violation in verse 16 is just the conclusion to these instructions. So that's an outline. Now let's just walk through it section by section. Here's what you and I need to understand is that for God's people, vows and oaths were a normal and ordinary part of their worshipping life. As I've highlighted all the instances uh, already from uh, the Old Testament. You you may have missed it, but if you just flick back a few pages, Numbers 21, um, they're at war with Arad. You look at verse 2, Numbers 21, and Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to uh, their destruction. God's people were in the business of making promises corporately and then even individually. Now let me read verse 2 for you. Men, listen up. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. 
he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. The reason this is so noteworthy is there are no exceptions for men. You make a promise, you keep your promise. No loopholes here. All that comes out of your mouth, you shall do. Presumably the man that's been referred in verse 2 here is a man who's either a husband or a father or both. He's a leader in the home. He's a leader of his family. And because he's got such responsibility, his words are invested with great authority for the direction of his home. He's to keep the family harmony. He's to care for his daughter. He's to ensure that him and his wife are one and going forward before the Lord in the right way. So men, this passage begins with this emphasis, just so that you know that you've got a high responsibility. I know some of you are single, some of you aren't yet married, some of you are married, some of you don't have, you have children, some of you soon will have children. God says when you make a promise, you are to keep your promise. Now, let's now look at what comes next. Verse 3 to verse 5. Let's read it together. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth. So just so you've got it clear in your head, we're talking about a young woman living in her father's house. Maybe she's under 10. Maybe she's a teenager. She's a daughter under her father's house. And her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she's bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand. And every pledge by which she's bound herself shall stand. Now this is an incredible statement. This is a wonderful statement. This statement reveals that women in Israel, even young women, daughters under a father, have moral agency. And the reason that is significant is because in all the surrounding nations in the ancient Near East, there was no such country, culture that we can see that would ever allow a daughter to have moral agency. God is saying if a young woman makes a vow, makes a promise, dad doesn't stop it, it stands. Her statements carry weight. Things that she promises before the Lord things that she vows to do, they are significant. But read on. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. Well, as she said, she's moral agency. Well, what, what does this say? It says if her father opposes it, then her vow does not stand. Now, what we've got to understand here is that The father is a godly father, presumably. This is what God's people were to be godly, living in the land. And this father who would oppose her vow, he would oppose it clearly on the basis of wisdom. Clearly on the basis that this young daughter was making a wrong decision. It may have even been a decision that implicated their family. So the commentators give examples. You know, you can imagine a young daughter saying to the Lord, Lord, I'm desperate for a husband. Please, would you give me a husband? If you give me a husband, Lord, I promise you can have a tenth of my father's harvest. (laughs) Now, she's not in the place to 
make that offering. Her father hears of it and says, listen, daughter, I love you. I know you meant your word sincerely. I know exactly what you intended. But daughter, you can't make that that promise. Well, in that case, it is envisaged her father, who takes her vow seriously, who cares for his daughter, has compassion on his daughter, wants the best for her, would say to her, no, this, this promise cannot stand. But you can imagine the daughter saying, but dad, if you, if you say that this vow doesn't stand, then my relationship with the Lord's going to be broken. Because I've said something in his presence before him and it's wrong. Well, what does verse 5 say? And the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. No, daughter, you will not have a broken relationship with the Lord. God will forgive you. He is gracious and he knows and he understands and he's compassionate towards you. I just say this, women, young girls, God understands you, he knows you, your words before him, they carry weight and significance. In his wisdom, he's given you a father. Some of us, our our experiences of earthly fathers might be bad and tragic, and I'm really sorry for that. But say in the context where there is a godly father, a loving father, a caring father, in the context of ancient Israel, a daughter should trust her father that he would know what was best. And this would not disrupt one's relationship with the Lord. Okay, then comes verses 6 and 8. And this anticipates the same young woman, now married. Let's look at verses 6 and 8. If she marries a husband while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand. And her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. So if she's a woman who gets married and she's made many vows before she was married and on the day where the, the, the young woman is now introduced to her husband and she lays out, by the way, you need to know, here's all the promises I've made before the Lord <laughs> during times of sacrifice. I'm going to lay them out before you. And he hears them and says, okay, it's fine. But then read on. But if on the day that her husband comes to her, uh, comes to hear of it and he poses her, then he makes her vows that was on her and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself. Void, in essence. That's the context. And, and, and here's maybe the instance. Commentator's example would be a woman who, when she was living under her father's roof before she was married, says one day before the Lord, because of her father's love and care and commitment to her, God, I promise that I'll never leave my home village. I'll never travel more than two or five miles because I always want to live in close proximity to my dad. Then she gets married and she meets her husband and her husband says, well, listen, I'm a shepherd and we're going to be traveling all across Canaan. There's no way you can keep that vow. I'm nulling and voiding that one. We can't, our marriage isn't going to survive if we were just to stay within two miles of your dad's home. That's the instance where a husband could, on hearing this vow make it null and void but let me be clear the emphasis always begins if the if the husband does not speak well the lack of opposition is always taking an affirmation of the vow 
The only time when the husband is opposing it in the context of marriage is because he's saying, listen, we're now becoming one. And as a, a couple who've become one in God's sight, we need to be united in everything that will, will be for the flourishing of our home, of our marriage, and of our futures together. Again, the presumption is there's a godly man caring for a godly woman. Then we have another sidebar, if you like, um, verse 9. But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. And I really think it's important to point out this. If you know the Old Testament, we've just studied Numbers chapter 26, was it? Daughters of uh, 27, daughters of uh, Zephilda, or Zephilad, and you remember God's compassionate for these daughters who had no brother, and he gave them a portion of inheritance. You know that one of the constant refrains throughout the Old Testament is that God cares deeply for the widows and the orphans. He'll be a husband to the widow. God cares deeply for women. He celebrates them. Proverbs, the the godly woman in Proverbs, she's strong. She's a businesswoman. She's at the city gates. Her children will rise up and call her blessed. Everyone respects her. You see, God's got a a real care for women. So you could read verse 9 and think, okay, a woman who's a widow or is divorced, her vows shall stand against her. I don't think this is to be read negatively. It's actually saying God cares for a woman who is on her own, that every vow that she's taken she can keep because she is a woman who can stand on her own two feet and god takes seriously all that she said he delights in it this isn't god just leaving a woman who's a widow or a divorcee in a difficult place but actually in a very precious place your words daughter i take seriously because i love you and i am for you Okay, so that's the the sidebar. Then we get back to verses 10 and 11. We've got another instance. And if she vowed, this is the married woman in her home, if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by a pledge with an oath and her husband heard of it and said nothing, did not oppose her, then all her vows shall stand and every pledge she bound herself shall stand. So if a woman's in her home, she's married, she makes a vow, it'll all stand if the husband does nothing. Verse 12, but if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears of them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband has made them void and the Lord will forgive her. Now, I need you to understand this is really important. The only time a husband can oppose a vow is on the day he hears it. He cannot a week after having heard his woman, his wife, make a vow, think to himself, you know, in, a, in hindsight, that was a bad vow. How dare you have made that? I'm going to render that now on the Can't do that. God's got a protection for his daughters. What she said, what she vowed, you did nothing. That was maybe passive, that was lazy, that you weren't applying wisdom. Her vow stands. Don't you dare think you could ever hold anything over your wife. Again, I want you to say that in the context of marriage, especially in the context of the ancient Near East culture, this is giving wives moral agency, dignity, and value. It's so glorious. What a God we have. 
So if the husband disapproves it, on the day he hears it, it can be null and void. But the only reason a godly husband would render something null and void is because he realizes it is not for the good of their marriage union or for their um, family harmony. You can imagine a wife married to a husband, because these are often the context where vows would be made. Wife's desperate for children, like Hannah. She goes to the temple. Lord, if you give me a son, if you give me a daughter, I'll give them. I'll give them to your service. In one sense, you can say, that's not a bad vow. God blessed Hannah with that promise in that context. But what if the livelihood of the family depends on the fact that they need their children to work? And the husband thinks, like, a son committed to ministry. Listen, we're not of the tribe, but Levi, we don't need to make that vow. So that's the context. Okay, next verse. Sorry, we're just working through it, but this is the, I think this is the best way to work through this chapter. Any vow, this verse uh, 13, any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish, or her husband may make void. We saw that phrase, afflict oneself, in the previous chapter. It's what people did in the lead up to the Day of Atonement. It literally means that you would feast, eh, fast, put maybe sackcloths and ashes on. You would afflict yourself for a specific purpose. You might withhold yourself from even conjugal relations in, in the context of marriage. If a husband decides it's good for the sake of their marriage, she wants time to pray, go for it. Good. If it's not going to be good for their marriage, he can render it void. It's interesting. The commentators would reference at this point First Corinthians chapter 7. You go home tonight, read First Corinthians chapter 7. You'll see why they, they use that reference um, or you could flick there at some point and see there is a connection to this chapter. But I want to keep us moving because we're really close to the end. And here is what we need. Verse 14. But if her husband says nothing to her from the day to day, then he establishes all her vows or all her pledges that are upon her. He's established them because he said nothing to her on the day that he heard them. So Prince will just enunciated that if he doesn't say it when he heard it, then they stand. Listen to verse 15. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her iniquity. He will be held responsible, guilty for breaking his word. He did nothing when he had the opportunity. And so he has no right to make a woman, his wife's vow, null and void after the fact. And God will hold the man whose words or lack of words as very significant. And so, men, one of the things we're seeing here is if you want to be a godly husband, a godly father, you've got to make sure that you, your words are in line with your character. And the reason that matters to God, the reason that's why he wanted his people to live like this in the promised land, is because his words always align with his character. Everything he says, he means. Everything he means, he says. Every promise he has made, he has kept. And he wants his children to live out his life. Now, there is a couple of things I want to just highlight just as we land the plane. When you read through the Old Testament, there is something quite notable. Deuteronomy says this. It's Deuteronomy chapter 23. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. 
For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you'll be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you shall not be guilty of sin. So you shall be careful to do what has passed your lips. God was very clear as he gave his people instructions regarding vows. Don't be rash in making vows. Be very thoughtful in making vows. That's why I said we make vows in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord, seeking ultimately the Lord's blessing. You could turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And uh, Solomon has the, the great wisdom. Be not rash with your mouth, not, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. And there's this really well-known, often quoted line. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow not pay. You know who picked up this whole teaching on vows? The Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and many people have concluded that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is a bad thing to make vows altogether. But in the context of Jesus speaking, it's a sermon for another day, he's not saying that it's wrong to make vows in the context of these religious leaders who were trying to find all exceptions for vows. It was certainly a wrong thing to make them. Jesus' younger brother, James, Make your yes, yes, and your no, no. The principle of God's people is that our words matter in God's presence. So can I do one thing? Can I remind us we've all taken vows? If you're a member of this church, the covenant community, when you publicly profess your faith or join by transference, you made vows to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to follow him in dependence upon his spirit, prayerful reliance. You vowed to use your gifts to serve this church, your time, your talents. You vowed to submit to the leadership of this church as we vowed to promise to love and care for you. Every time there's been a baptism, in God's presence, we ask the question, congregation, do you promise to pray for, support, family and if we're all honest as we think of our vows and some of us are married and the tragedy is is that many of all of us are married and various ways have broken our vows because the vows of marriage are high and holy and Jesus doesn't just care about the outward practices but the inward practices you've committed adultery if you've lusted after another woman in your heart another man in your heart You've committed murder if you've said a word in haste to the one you love. Curse someone made in God's image. We've, we, we, I and those who are office bearers in this church, we've made vows to what we believe and vows to what we will do in this church. It's a high and holy calling. Now, Spoiler alert for the Old Testament. God's people fail to keep their word. God's people broke vows time and time again, their promises time and time again. Israel that was supposed to be this nation distinct to all the nations and showing case in God to all around them, 
They ended up marrying them. They ended up committing idolatry. They ended up yoking themselves to their gods. That's because Israel was not the Messiah. Israel was not the hope. The true Israel was the Lord Jesus. And the wonderful, the most glorious thing is if you want to see the faithfulness of God, you see it in this. He kept his promise to save a people for himself. And this is how glorious it is, right? Jesus Christ came and bore in his body the penalty and the punishment of all of the broken promises of his people. For his bride. For his chosen sons and daughters. And he wasn't passive whilst we were sinning. He made it very clear we should not sin. But he was active in his love. And if Numbers 30 ends with the husband will bear the iniquity. Oh, brothers and sisters, know this. The groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, bore in his body sin when he was the sinless one. The righteous died for the unrighteous. And it's his faithfulness to his promises and to his character that should cause all of us to want to throw ourselves afresh on him and to ask for his help. You know what's so incredible about Jesus is that he loves us and he delights in us and he cares in everything that cares about everything we say and he wants us to mean what we say. But he needs you to know this. Everything he has said, he meant. And he will keep. And he's coming for us one day. And he'll take us from these, this insect world. And he'll perfect us. So that there's coming a day when every single thing we say over our lips, we will mean. And we will keep. Because we'll be perfect. And that's glorious good news for the Christian. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the way that you instructed your people to prepare them for land, for life in the promised land. We thank you for the way in which in the history of redemption that we can even study this, this uh, chapter, one of the most stund- uh, least studied chapters of the book of Numbers, and we can even draw lessons for how we order our lives. God, we thank you for the way that you show yourself as a God who cares for your people We thank you just for the the, the special care you give to your daughters. God, we pray that we as a a church would would see that care and see that love and it would be embodied the the way that we play our covenant life out in this church and then in our our homes. Lord, we pray for for the men of this congregation, those who are husbands and fathers, those who are soon to be husbands and fathers. Make us godly men. And make us thoughtful and caring men. May we be like the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be willing to give our lives as living sacrifices for our wives. Lord, every time we hear promises and vows made in our presence, may we always remember our vows. And may we always be those who seek to renew in keeping them. But only in dependence upon you, because we can And God, we we just want to praise you and thank you for the gospel. We want to thank you for your oath, your covenant, your promise. And we thank you that that is just 
seen in full high definition display in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And for that we praise you. Amen.